What makes Frontier Toyota so awesome? They make it so easy. They treat people right. They're straightforward. Frontier Toyota is also the proud recipient of Toyota's President's Cabinet Award, one of only 12 dealerships in the nation to win the award. It's our customers. Because at Frontier Toyota, it's about you! Come in or buy online at FrontierToyota.com. Frontier Toyota, Creekside Road in Valencia. Thanks for listening to the Santa Clarita Valley Signal News Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Bender. This week, we're going to dive into the water. It's not rained much at all this winter, supposed to this weekend, but we'll see about that. Later in the episode, I talk with Janine Jones, the Interstate Resources Manager at the California Department of Water Resources. But first, we stay local with Santa Clarita Valley Water's Sustainability Manager, Matt Jenkins. As Sustainability Manager, uh, one of the uh, programs, or at least the suite of programs that I manage, are specific to our residential, commercial, and landscape conservation programs. And that's really the engagement, education, incentive of uh, technologies, behaviors, practices to help people uh, improve the, um, the, the utility of their water service while reducing those costs by reducing inefficiency or losses that are related to inefficient uses of water. Um, so, those programs range from smart controller rebates to online workshops, um, uh, rebates through our health uh, program, which are the healthy and efficient landscape program uh, rebates, which include uh, rebates for converting uh, spray to drip irrigation for non-turf applications. Uh, you know, for example, many folks have shrubs in their landscapes, yeah. but they're irrigating yeah. those with spray irrigation. So they're, they're applying water if you think about it from an efficiency standard or efficiency perspective, you're applying water to an entire area, even though only certain plants need to be watered. So you have a lot of overspray, a lot of inefficiency baked into that design. Those systems tend to be about 50% efficiency from the get-go, but they're often operated about 35 to 40% efficiency. And if you know, in the efficiency world, you can get up to about 90% efficiency if you use drip irrigation. So there's great saving opportunities. While really maintaining those, the plant health uh, uh, and again, getting the high level of service uh, from the, uh, or utility from the water service. So we have drip irrigation rebates, pressure regulation rebates, high efficiency sprinkler nozzle rebates. We offer rebates for converting turf to lawn. Um, <clears throat> as, as I mentioned before, we have online workshops that customers can get a $20 credit and conduct a self-evaluation from their homes, learn how to uh, read their water bill and understand their water bill and use it as a tool to manage water efficiency. Uh, you can also learn how to conduct your own kind of leak assessment to see if you have any leaks in your home, mm. an irrigation evaluation, how to fix, find and fix and repair uh, toilet leaks, as well as uh, kind of identify how well your your home's efficiency rating is relative to kind of what we normally see in uh, the community. So again, uh, what I do is in, in, in this particular instance with the conservation programs, as I manage the programs that we use to help customers, again, improve the utility of their water service while reducing those, those water, you know, water waste and losses due to inefficient operations. How's a job like yours change? If we think about the last decade, we spent a lot of it in drought and then the last few years, pretty decent amounts of rain every wet season. How does a job like yours change from uh, uh, those drought years to the wet years 
and then now here we are back in a drought. Yeah, it's raining this week, but that's only the second time since April. So how's a job like yours change? Sure. You know, I think that when you look at any type of, of strategic plan or strategic vision, plans generally in life and in our jobs and professional careers, they tend to be straight lines, right? We're, we're here now and we want to get here and there's a straight line. Right. And so we do have mandates that, that drive our, uh, you know, our mandates and our vision and our values definitely drive our conservation programs. We want to provide the best service to our customers. That's a consistent, persistent message uh, and an engagement opportunity. Now, however, when you apply reality to the plan, it's usually up and down, it's a <laughs> big squiggly line, right? And sometimes exactly. we're moving faster in those efforts than, than other times. So when we look at the long-term mandate, we had, uh, since 2010, we had what was called the SBX 7-7, 20% by 2020 reduction in gallons per capita a day. That was a, a basically a 2% reduction in gallon per capita a day compared to our baseline that we had to achieve by 2020. And that sunset on December 31st of, of 2020. Uh, and it does appear as though our community, SCV Water, and our uh, customers have met that target. Although we're, we're, we're conducting an analysis right now, we'll know exactly yeah. where we landed. I think we were gonna land around 24% when we needed to get 20%. So we can see that, yeah, in the normal operations, we're moving 2% conservation per year. That's our target. Uh, in years uh, during the drought, we have to you know, accelerate that activity. For example, uh, I think in the first year, the governor, uh, in, in 2014, the governor had requested voluntary conservation of 20% or something like that. Sounds and, about and, right. And then, in, and then what happened is they said, we need to get the statewide conservation because there was no snowpack. Reservoirs were down to like 30%. And they said, we're looking at, you know, one year of import water availability. We're going to need to achieve a 25% statewide conservation uh, by uh, uh, 2015 and 2016, and clearly that's a big difference from 20, you know, two percent to 25 percent. Yeah, it was huge. And it was huge, and so our our agencies, the way that those targets were based, was based off of uh, I think a July through September residential gallon per capita day uh, number. So our agencies or our divisions at the time had a 24 percent, 28 and 32 percent conservation target relative to usage in 2013. So that causes us to escalate significantly. We got to 30%. Uh, so we achieved our conservation targets uh, during that time because we had such great engagement, education, uh, incentive-driven, you know, building those partnerships and collaboration, cooperation with our customers, which not only helped us achieve those immediate accelerated conservation goals during the drought, but it also helped us maintain some conservation, so getting some of that traction of conservation or hardening of conservation after the drought restrictions were lifted. So we, uh, uh, you know, I'd be happy to send over uh, a graph that kind of shows the conservation and production over yeah, time sure. uh, relative to our population growth and relative to those SBX 7-7 goals. So we did pretty good. We're talking about billions upon billions of gallons of water saved. There's still much conservation opportunity in the community one of the challenges to having such a robust water system that provides water to nearly every you know, home and every, almost any room we want it to go to in our homes, one of the challenges of having such a robust uh, distribution system is that it also makes it really easy to waste water. So again, we're, we're still looking at all those opportunities to ingrain uh, into the DNA, the water conservation ethic. 
and to make water conservation a California way of life. So still much work to be done, but we've had some great successes up to this point. And I know you mentioned that you're going to be analyzing 2020 as a whole, but just in terms of the numbers that you do know, how was it last year? Because during the pandemic, and obviously as we begin oh, yeah. this year, way different than any other year. People are at home, so they're maybe they're taking more showers, or hey, they're yeah. home. Maybe they're taking fewer showers. Yeah. I'm raising my hand for that one. <laughs> yeah. My uh, my weekly shower is amazing, but it's weekly. <laughs> It's weird. Yeah. yeah, right, right. <laughs> who am I going right. to oppress? Who, am I, who do I have to smell good for? Huh? It's like, I need to do it because it has to get done more than a <laughs> you know, daily thing, right? <laughs> so uh, what are some of the numbers that you do know relative to how things were going last year? Yeah, so I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, when you look at our community water consumption, uh, we've seen residential usage jump up by about 13, 14% uh, compared to 2019. Uh, and part of that is a combination of both the, the reality of people being at home instead of those water usage occurring in the schools or businesses. We've seen a 20% drop in, in school and business. Wow, 20%. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. But, but remember, that's only about of 10% of our usage, where 13% of our use is residential or 50% of our use is residential. And it went up 13%. So yeah. a yeah. bigger portion of the pie went up relative to the year before. Um, but that seems to be, again, a combination of the pandemic, which is understandable. People need to use water at home. We're, we're, you know, water conservation is not about getting folks to not use water. It's about using water wisely, smartly, efficiently. So yeah. it's okay. We're, we're going to see usage go up. Now, we, we have seen it go up in other communities, 15 20%. So the fact that we're only gone up 13% still shows that, that again, there is some efficiency in baked in. Uh, to the DNA and that we're seeing that grow. We call that hardening. Conservation hardening is the the technique there where those practices get baked into usage. Um, you know, things that, that don't have traction or that are inelastic are things that you'll see rebounds after, you know, you'll see drought will drop or after right. drought, we go back to where we were before, but we've seen us kind of balance in between. Uh, so again, two factors, being at home more because of the pandemic, but also as you pointed out, the absence of precipitation means that people are going to irrigate more uh, to, to, to provide their landscapes with the water they need. So the combination of hotter temperatures, um, less precipitation, and uh, people being at home pandemic, we have seen water consumption jump up in both residential and in our dedicated irrigation sectors. You mentioned a few minutes ago the idea that we've saved billions and billions and billions of gallons of water with the conservation over the last few years. How much from those record-setting years that ended the drought, how much of that water was stored, was saved just for, say, this year now that we're, we're back into drought-like conditions? That's, a, that's a great, another great question. So in the Santa Clarita Valley, we get our water primarily from two different sources, import water from the state water project system and then groundwater. And so what we saw, what we, what happened in those years when we were, we were, do, we were using less water, but we were getting a lot of rainfall and we had opportunities to bank that water. So what we'll do is we will supply our immediate demands, but then when we have surplus of import water relative to what our demands are, we will take those supplies and we will make arrangements with other agencies to basically give them water that year so that we can take water and pull it into our system on drought years, uh, which is the banking concept. So we might say, okay, 
we have 20,000 acre feet of water that we, we don't need to use this year, but we can't keep it in the, the store in the reservoirs because it might spill. So we're going to give it over to, you know, hand it over and make a deal with this water agency so they can put it in the ground. And then when we need it, we'll get, we'll pull water in. Right. And so I think right now we have around, our community uses about 65 to 70,000 acre feet of water uh, per year. An acre foot is roughly a football field, one foot deep in water. Uh, its exact number is 325,851 gallons. So <laughs> it's, it's a pretty big number. Um, and we use about 70,000 of those, 65 to 70,000 of those per year. Uh, and uh, half of it comes from the import, half of it comes from local unusual years. Uh, we've had some issues where we had to kind of break that up a little bit. Again, there's the plan and the reality. Uh, but I think we have about 150,000 acre feet of import water in banked uh, capabilities. And then we have sizable reserves in our, or, or I guess sizable sources in our alluvium and deep uh, Saugus aquifers here in the valley. Are you able to speak toward rates, how they might be affected this year, be- either because of the drought or just because, you know, the, the law allows for rate increases or whatnot? So we're currently going through a cost of service study. I mean, the way that, that rates are designed uh, and, you know, there are immediate impacts when you, when you look at, when you look at rates, you kind of want to look at the short-term issue and the long-term issue. Uh, and, you know, immediate, of course, in many, in many ways, the immediate issue of sizable conservation is that you have to, uh, through rates or some other kind of uh, financial practice, you have to make up for that revenue shortfall. And so you've, you've also got pressures on the other side, such as increasing in chemical costs and power costs. So inflation is always pushing up your costs. And then your, your uh, rates are really your total cost kind of, you know, accumulated, divided by how many units you think you're going to sell. And then there's how many units you actually sell. And so that does require some truing up. Um, and, and we know that rates are continually kind of going However, our current plan is that we would handle uh, any type of revenue shortfall resulting from conservation uh, using our reserves primarily and then addressing additional shortfalls if they were to occur um, uh, through other financial mechanisms and instruments. But I can cite a couple of studies that are really interesting. Mm -hmm. And those are long-term value of conservation. You know, uh, there's this saying in the conservation industry, which is that the cheapest water you have is that you'll ever have is the water you currently have. So that's very kind of interesting because that means that Mm, the most affordable water we have is the stuff that we have currently in our, uh, in, in our, uh, uh, you know, in our management paradigm. What they found is that communities that conserve water, the money they spent to conserve water and the rate difference based off of how the impacted rates, had they had to go out and find new sources of water and build new infrastructure, uh, you're looking at some communities who have saved, you know, half a billion dollars or a billion dollars in costs because they were able to utilize the resources they had right. instead of having to expand those. So that the short term is, oh, we sold less water than we needed to recover revenues this year. That's the short term, and then you balance that out. Long term, conservation is by far... Uh, a great financial uh, mechanism to maintain rate stability. Before I let you go, I've got to find out <laughs> what is it like in the Dickens household, considering you are all about water conservation. I mean, I, I've I've got you on Zoom right now, 
how worried are you that people are just running around the house just turning on faucets because they because they they know dad's busy right now they're like oh it's on <laughs> well i can tell you that the uh, the home that i i have was built in 1970s and that i put so much into the efficiency that relative to the the homeowner before we're using about half as much water as he as that homeowner used, even though yeah. we have three times as many people and critters living in it. So we're <laughs> we're, we're we're doing well. But I can tell you that that my sons uh, and family and friends that visit us, if they see something, I'm the first to hear about it, and they are looking <laughs> constantly because you are constantly under the microscope when you're a, when you're a water efficiency expert. You're like, hey, I'm sure. wait, you got something happening over here, and it's like, well, you know, I was gonna go. Uh, you know, go for a run this morning or a walk or something, but I better replace that toilet. So I'm right. Right. They, and, they and keep me busy. <laughs> are party favors at your house, just like low flow faucets oh. and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I can, I will share that every time I go to uh, like a social engagement and you know, I'll go, uh, you know, wash my hands or something like that. And I'll come back out and I'll say, Hey, I'm, I meant to tell you this, your, your toilet's <laughs> running. I'm always, and they're like, Oh, of course. You know, make sure not to invite this guy next time. <laughs> and uh, family trips. Last one, family trips. Does everybody roll their eyes because it's yet another trip to the Edmonston pumping plant? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They're like, right, oh, yeah. great, five north. I wonder where we're going. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You guys, you're really going to like this. It's the biggest, <laughs> tallest water lift in the world, and it's going to be a blast. <laughs> Again, Dad, Again. come on. <laughs> Yeah, Matt, right. thank you, man. I, I really appreciate the time. Hey, Aaron, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for putting this together. And, uh, you know, again, if folks want to visit our website at yourscvwater.com, they can learn all about many different ways and several ways to improve water efficiency. Now let's go over to Janine Jones at the Department of Water Resources, first addressing the drought. If you uh, look back to, say, the start of this century, in 2000 even, you could say we have almost had a watershed moment since then, pun intended, because we have mm -hmm. definitely seen warming as well as increased dryness. And warming is important when you think about dry conditions. So, um, you know, as many people probably remember, we did have a five-year drought in water years 2012 to 2016. That was actually for much of Southern California, the driest five-year period in a reconstructed paleoclimate record that might go back as much as 600 years or so, according to work done mm. for us by the University of Arizona. So that was a very dry five-year period. Then uh, in 2017, we had a wet year in most of the state, but some places mother nature wasn't quite as generous to. And in fact, the central coast area, even grading down a little bit into the northern part of your area, uh, didn't recover as rapidly as the rest of the state. 2018, we went back to dry again. 2019, actually quite wet. But then, so we come to 2020, which actually many people would say is not a good year for several reasons, COVID obviously <laughs> right, being right. one of them. But uh, 2020 was actually very dry. And in fact, NOAA, the National um, or, or uh, NOAA, the parent of the National Weather Service, I should use a more familiar term, actually released its climate rankings last week, and they point out 
that 2020 in terms of statewide precipitation was California's uh, third driest in 126 years of record. It was also the third warmest, which is a really interesting point when you think back to the driest years in our recent drought, 2014 and 2015, those years were the second driest and then the driest years in record. And if you look at our hydrology today, particularly in Northern California, we are actually in terms of what we call natural flows tracking right along with 2014 and 2015. So scary thought. Mm. So if we yeah. go to your area in Southern California and think about last year, Southern California last year, unlike Northern, was actually roughly average. And some parts of Southern California, San Diego County, parts of the Inland Empire, were actually above average. But the fact that most of Northern California was not just dry, but very dry, was what made it the third driest year of record on a statewide basis. So going into this year, uh, we have seen dry conditions really pretty much throughout the whole state. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, it you know, had rained very little in Southern California this year, also true for Northern California. And statewide snowpack right now, for example, is only a little better than half of average. The good news is that because water year 2019 was so wet, we actually had a lot of storage because of that. We really didn't see the big water supply impacts last year. And even now, when we think about how dry it was last year and this year, statewide reservoir storage is uh, better than you would expect considering the dry conditions. At the end of December, we were at 82% of average, for example, which is better than you would expect given the circumstances. So, Yeah, I remember during the drought, especially the water storage was such a huge issue. How long can we store, let's say, you know, one of those wet years in the last five or six, how long can that water last, if you will? Well, and this is where the real estate agents would say location, location, and location, because <laughs> it depends on how big your reservoir is. For example, the Colorado River system, which has two very large reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Lake Powell, can withstand many years of drought. And in fact, drought in the Colorado River Basin began in 2000. We continue to experience long-term drought there. And um, thanks to the massive storage capacity in Lake Mead and Powell, California has not had shortages in that supply. If you look at many smaller reservoirs, and I'll pick a reservoir that's close to your area, if you remember Lake Kachuma in Santa Barbara County, for example, during the mm -hmm. drought, when they actually had to put a floating pump station on the lake and pump water from some of the deeper areas to the outlet tower for the reservoir. So that the smaller reservoir, very dry area went dry quickly. But when we think about, you know, where are we now? One of the things we have to think about is where are we in the water year as well? So California on average gets uh, three quarters of its average annual precipitation from November to March. And the three months of uh, December, January, February are worth half, of, are worth half or 50% of that. So we're now from a statewide perspective, halfway through our wettest, um, normally wettest season. And hopefully we will start to recover. But of course, the longer we keep on going without rain, 
uh, makes it harder and harder to recover. So it will be very interesting to see what Mother Nature serves up to us between uh, now and say the early part of February. We don't see any large storms in the forecast, the, the big atmospheric river storms, for example, that bring mm -hmm. so much water. Right. We don't see any of them in the next, say, 10-day, two-week period. And beyond that, the weather forecasts you know, aren't reliable. So uh, we have to wait and see what we get. At what point do we kind of hit the panic button? You mentioned November to March, but especially December, January, and February are when we really collect a lot of the rainwater. At what point do we kind of hit that panic button? And what, is it, what does that look like? Not the button itself, but, but the panic. Yeah, well, you know, uh, one thing you can say about California is that we have had plenty of experience with drought and dry conditions because they are a natural and recurring feature of our climate. So this is certainly the time when we are watching the forecast very closely. And in fact, uh, one of the things that uh, we're trying to improve is the ability to get longer term forecasts of precipitation. Right now, a weather forecast has most of its skill in the first seven days. They do go out to two weeks operationally. Uh, we have been funding some experimental work with UC San Diego, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, University of uh, Los Angeles, UC Irvine, to try and uh, develop some tools to improve forecasting at these longer time scales. Now, one thing that's important for you all in Southern California is the fact that this is a La Nina year. And historically, La Nina years have usually been dry in California. Um, so that's another thought to keep in mind. So right now we're watching very carefully and keeping our fingers crossed that something will happen. But one thought that I want to particularly flag for your readers, what if it doesn't happen? So I mentioned that we had our uh, five-year drought in 2012 to 2016, and that was a very significant drought. Well, um, there were some, shall we say, emerging impacts from that drought that we really hadn't seen in prior California droughts. And the one I really want to point to is wildfire, because not only did mm -hmm. we break, rec because remember that drought occurred in a period of record temperatures. And as I said, last year, 2020, that was third driest, uh, third wet, third warmest rather for California. Mm -hmm. So when we look at that kind of setting in these dry conditions, when there is still dead fuel on the landscape from the prior drought, not to mention last year, um, this is something that we really want to think about. If you remember the major fires in 2020, which were mostly in Northern California, um, you know, record dry conditions, very warm. We almost quadrupled what had been the prior record for acres burned. You know, so the, uh, the extent of the wildfire was uh, uh, amazing something that we saw during the drought and is continuing even right now is that the wildfire season particularly in southern california is almost year-round i mean the fire in thousand oaks yesterday you know more of a brush fire um that sort of thing you know if you look went back 20 years you would not expect to see that in january you know just very atypical Right, right. There, it really is no season anymore. It, it's really just you got to be ready year round. Yeah, and we definitely encourage people who live in the wildland fire interface areas or in areas where they may be affected by wildfire to 
really think about what that means for their home, where they live, their workplace, those kinds of things. But for water agencies, it's also important to recognize that in um, the past, let's say five, six years or so, we have seen a major increase in the amount of water infrastructure that's been affected by droughts. This last um, summer, uh, we had to temporarily evacuate our Hyatt power plant at Lake Oroville because of a wildfire. Season before that, the Bureau of Reclamation had to evacuate its large power plant at Keswick at Shasta Lake. During, back during the drought, the San Francisco PUC had uh, millions of dollars worth of wildfire damage at its Hetch Hetchy Cherry Lake complex, including you know, to the uh, power infrastructure. And if you look on the smaller water systems, many small water systems, the kinds that only serve a few hundred connections, but that are in rural areas where they tend to be in a fire prone area, some of those you know, lose their infrastructure entirely for a period of time. So we really want people to be conscious of that risk. Obviously the state is always encouraging people to conserve. Several years ago, there was a call, I think it was something like 20 or 25% conservation. But do you anticipate in the next few months any calls for extra conservation from the governor? Well, um, and I would say that coming out of the last drought, a number of thing, a number of things have happened to try and um, put in place practices to improve things that were noted in the drought. So during the drought, there were uh, calls for mandatory conservation, for example, but following the drought, Legislation was enacted calling making water conservation a way of life, which essentially attempts to um, codify, if you will, some of those practices, prohibiting wasteful outdoor uses of water, like you know, using a hose to clean the sidewalk, that kind of thing. Um, so mm -hmm. that has been going forward. And also important to point out that since the 1980s, there has been a requirement in California for larger urban water suppliers to uh, do a, uh, an, urban water con an urban water management plan and update it every five years and submit that to us at DWR to review, that plan includes a water shortage contingency element, or i.e. a drought plan, as some people call it. Um, and after the last drought, the uh, requirements for those plans were amended to say, well, we used to say plan for a three-year drought. Now you have to plan for a five-year drought. So there's actually yeah. been a lot of work going forward in the conservation area. And in fact, this summer, the new updates of those plans are due to us in Sacramento. So a lot of progress being made there. Janine Jones with the Department of Water Resources up in Sacramento. Thank you, Janine. Appreciate the time. Well, um, hope your podcast goes well and hope it rains. Thanks for listening to the Santa Clarita Valley Signal News Podcast. You can email me comments, questions, episode ideas at abender at signalscv.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Aaron Bender. Also Facebook and TikTok at Aaron Bender Media. Talk to you next week. What makes Frontier Toyota so awesome? They make it so easy. They treat people right. They're straightforward. Frontier Toyota is also the proud recipient of Toyota's President's Cabinet Award, one of only 12 dealerships in the nation to win the award. It's our customers. Because at Frontier Toyota, it's about you!
Come in or buy online at FrontierToyota.com. Frontier Toyota, Creekside Road in Valencia.